When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to Burn by Books, the podcast you've been waiting for if what you're waiting for is a book obsessive with very particular tastes. I'm your host, Chris Holmes, and this week I have the pleasure of interviewing Gina Nutt, the poet and author of a brand new collection of linked essays, Night Rooms. If you've been wondering whether a life of horror movie watching can bring you closer to an understanding of how grief shapes our lives, You'll want to listen to Gina take us through her beautifully revealing essays on the genre of melancholy terror. As a non-horror movie watcher, I found Night Rooms inexplicably immersive. I never read essay collections in a single sitting, but Night Rooms propelled me through two complete readings on two separate afternoons. It is odd to describe a book about suicide and staring over the precipice of death as inviting, but Gina's voice speaks so intimately to her reader, and I fiercely recommend Night Rooms, just out with the incomparable indie press $2 radio. Before we get to my interview with Gina Nutt, I wanted to briefly mention a novel that has been running around in my head since the beginning of the pandemic. Brandon Taylor's much-heralded debut novel, Real Life, meets and surpasses the hype that comes along with being shortlisted for the Booker Prize as an American. The Brits adore it when the Americans storm onto the shortlist for that most important of literary awards in England. The story of Wallace, a graduate student in the hard sciences at a prestigious state university in the Midwest, sways between dramatizing the agonizingly detailed work of progressing an experiment in a lab riven by ego and suspicion, and placing us in a languorous three days of summer heat with friends trying to understand what makes a full and worthwhile life. What makes this novel particularly important to me is its combination of laying bare the micro and macro ways in which universities degrade black intellectuals, tearing them down with 10,000 paper cuts, 
and the beauty with which Taylor puts a blooming queer relationship into focus with complete unblinking honesty. Having spent my adult life working in and for universities, the myth of meritocracy has, at times, been a shield with which I could block out the ways in which merit was so often besides the point. Universities, like every other facet of American life, operate with a two-track system, the privileged, most often white privilege, and the disadvantaged, most often black and brown disadvantage. The former gets labeled genius, as is the case with a particularly noxious and racist lab mate of Wallace's, while the latter is disciplined for laziness or lack of preparation when, as is the case with Wallace, the student or professor of color has had to break through 30 walls of inequity at a full sprint, only to be told that they are slow. I found Wallace's life as a graduate student agonizing to read, and the spotlight it put on my own pre-made ladder of advantages was difficult to look at head-on. But so much was my love for this character that I kept my eyes steady as the gaze turned to look at me. This is a sad and tragic novel, but it doesn't feel weighted down with trauma. Indeed, there is a lightness of a character's refusal to be denied love. The writing is gorgeous without a single overwritten line. Taylor has gifts that cannot be denied, and it is clear that he will continue to announce himself to the world in a form that we cannot look away from. Please do yourself a favor and buy a copy of Real Life. You will not be sorry that you did. Welcome back to Burned by Books. I'm very lucky today to get to talk to the writer Gina Nutt, author of a new collection of essays, Night Rooms. Night Rooms is a remarkable example of how the essay form is being wielded in unexpected ways to take on the most important questions of human experience. In this case, Gina grapples with the nature of our relationship to death and loss, grief and recovery using the most unlikely of cinematic sounding boards, the horror movie. In a style that is axiomatic and poetic with a driving narrative voice that would feel familiar in a contemporary novel, Gina tells the story of her own experience with the fear and fascination with death through the reliving of plot lines from seminal horror movies that have left their imprint on her. Narratives of Scream Queens, Cabins in the Woods, Final Girls, and the Splat Pack intermingle and cross-pollinate with snapshots of Gina's life. With a remarkable mastery of the form, Gina wields, winds the cultural touchstones of her youth and adulthood. Jaws, Poltergeist, Carrie, Clash of the Titans, Saw, Hostel, It Follows, and so many others with some named directly and others only hinted at, like the monster around the corner waiting to pounce. These totems of cultural horror provide a recognizable structure for confronting the everyday dread that follows us through life, and for the amorphousness of loss and grief, 
or as Gina puts it, for the, quote, days filled as postponement or temporary escape from what walks slowly towards us. This is perversely the book we need for our particular moment of virus terror. The COVID pandemic puts a razor point on the relentlessness of grief, best called melancholy when it refuses to leave us in peace. As Gina suggests, we long for the deus ex machina, the god in the machinery to be lowered down to save us from that which follows us ceaselessly. These are essays that dare to cross the threshold into the darkness, the mysteries and anxieties about death and loss that we normally keep artificially at arm's length. But it would be a mistake to call this collection grim. The style is driving and compelling and playful. There is the morose, of course, but it is couched in a desire to confront the maddening inscrutability of death. If anything, Night Rooms made me feel more hopeful rather than less so. I felt challenged to treat that which we fear and postpone as equally consequential to the meaning we give our humanness as all the quotidian things with which we fill our lives. It is my great pleasure to welcome Gina Nutt to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much, Chris. That that was really just a generous beautiful introduction. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for being here. Um, and I'd love to, for you to start with a little bit of a reading, if you don't mind, to offer us a, a roadmap for uh, getting a sense of what you're doing with these essays. And I think it'll be nice for our listeners to have a taste of your style. Absolutely. So I'm going to read from the beginning of the first essay. I used to imagine wanting someone alive would revive them, if caught right after dying. If I went after them, buoyed by reflexive hope, I might bring them back. Like losing something, a bracelet, a pair of sunglasses, a plastic sandal, over the side of a boat, seeing the outline dim as it sinks. I'd flood with instinct dive into the water right away, head first, to retrieve what was lost. If I look at the sky at the right moment, evening and morning mirror each other, the light, the sky, the air's vague smell, a hazy line blurs the intervals, deepens my readiness to disorient myself, to lean deeper into dreams where I am falling and feel awake. I have become acquainted with the creature feature, Life emerged from lake or sea, an isolated town, a gash in Arctic ice, ugly, ancient, miraculous. Some living thing scientists have not yet discovered. Some living thing scientists created or found and hid. How body horror wrecks the human form. An infection, a botched experiment, the skin newly revised, a brilliant rash, cracking dryness molted to accommodate a larger shape. Eyes bloodshot or jaundiced, blacked through by change. Pupils dilated wide, irises pressed into rings too thin to see. The spine, a seam where a costume zipper may hide. I have watched rituals summon the supernatural and accidents awaken ghosts. Someone calls back from beyond the grave. Sometimes they take someone back with them. Zombie and vampire films are familiar. 
infectious bites and apocalypse templates, eternal afterlife outlines for the undead, survival strategies for the living, occasions for a slasher, slumber party, football game, summer camp, sorority, cabin getaway, a too-perfect-to-be-real small town, often harboring secrets. A dream becomes a nightmare. First times, making love in cars, on basement couches, living room couches, in the woods. Holidays and celebrations, Halloween, Christmas, Valentine's Day, birthdays, graduation, prom. Events inspiring chainsaw massacres. Summer vacation, a road trip, a cannibal family living in a house of hoarded, dusty objects collected from victims. Almost everyone dies. Someone gets away in the end, but not really because the driver in the flagged down car is a villain. Or the survivor goes to a hospital, and when she stares out the window, all she sees is a sunset and a fence, a man in a suit, tie, and white shirt. The man swings a chainsaw at the horizon. The blade splits the sky from the earth. That is beautiful and and really quite haunting. I, I began by calling these essays, and I suppose that's what you call them as well on the front cover of the book. But I might argue that Night Rooms is one essay broken into different strands of thinking about the same subject matter, death. If what um, our teachers have told us about the essay is true, that it is etymologically derived from the Latin for to try or to attempt, then this is an essay that attempts thinking about the unthinkable, the unknowable of death. Why was the genre of the horror movie the catalyst for your thinking about the unthinkable? Yeah, so I, I think about the horror genre as kind of this this vessel, this like visual manifestation to to think about the unthinkable. Um, I would say to see the unseeable, but that that seems inaccurate in our time mm-hmm. when you know everyday horror is really accessible um, mm-hmm. in the news, cell phone videos. It's just a constant scroll of it. Um, but so for this book in particular, you know, it is horror is that manifestation where we see what maybe some time ago was unseen. Um, and at the time I began writing what would what would become the first essay, I was thinking a lot about death. And I know that sounds like really like morbid, um, but it was following uh, two deaths by suicide in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and. You know, I watch a lot of movies, I rewatch a lot of movies, and many of them are horror. So I think there was this kind of sense where I was, I was questioning that in a sense, but I also in some way was finding not comfort from that, but a sense of like, an unwillingness to stop. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Just surprising in a way you would think, well, this is a really horrible, sad thing. Why would I continue to watch those? Um, so it seemed a place I wanted to linger because it was something I was curious about, like, what is my fascination? What is my obsession or interest even? Um, You know, and I think anyone even who maybe isn't dealing with a big loss like that might ask that question in this world, like, why am I interested in watching these films? Or why would I linger? 
Yeah, I mean, it's uh, whether it's horror movies or or other things in our lives that kind of brush up against death. I feel like everyone has some manner of fascination with the thing that we fear the most. And it's it's funny when I started reading, I was like, oh, this is going to have a lot of um, interaction with uh, with the horror genre, and it's not a genre I've watched a lot of. I'm kind of a scaredy cat. Like I I get really nervous watching them. Um, you know, there's a character in your essays who sort of like hides her face and <laughs> says she's no longer coming to movie club night. And I'm, I'm definitely that person. And yet every horror, um, movie that you talked about, I knew its plot. Like I knew all the elements of it and was fascinated prior to the reading with it. So it's something that I'm fascinated in, even as I don't watch very much of it. And I wonder if it's because it it gives us a way of digesting that um, unthinkable, unknowable, sometimes unseeable thing. Well, and I think too, a lot of those, a lot of those narratives, the reason they feel so familiar is because it's so they're so ingrained. Like we know and have kind of the cultural context for a lot of these films or at least the tropes they're alluding to before we perhaps encounter an ind individual film. Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking like specifically of like, you know, a monster like Freddy Krueger. Like yeah. for some reason that was just like something I knew as, as, as a child, like, Maybe it was because I grew up in the in the 90s and, uh, you know, just saw like a Freddy at the video store. Like that was just something always um, to fear with this idea of like someone who would get you in your sleep. Mm -hmm. um, but even it's as simple as like, you know, if someone like makes a stabbing gesture and like sing, not sings, but hums, you know, the shower, she, shower scene notes from Psycho, like we have the the context or at least the understanding for some of those films. So I kind of was working off that to some extent, like um, that some of these films and some of the familiar tropes are so ingrained that like a reader who might not be a fan or who might look away uh, or not come back to movie night might have that steady footing throughout. Yeah, and it, it reminds me of the way you write about the hyper-meta cabin in the woods, the ultimate sort of like tropes on the outside horror movie. Um, and you say, it is entertaining to watch the characters live out our expectations for them in a, in a place the genre has told us again and again to fear. Um, are you drawn to like the kind of very concrete structure of the horror genre um, and what it gives, uh, how it gives a structure to death, the ultimate kind of unstructured human activity? So I, I think it does give a sort of a shape or at least some sort of template uh, to at least reckon with or better understand death. I think also as the genre continues to grow, like it, it increases our capacity for understanding and kind of gives us different models for um, understanding death. And, you know, in the case of this book, which I think uses the genre and fear as perhaps even a, an avenue into understanding grief, um, it gives us a new way to kind of to address those feelings and to plumb those kind of unknown, enormous emotions and to to work through them 
Yeah, and it's um, you know your book is as much about grief and the um, the difficulty we have with um, with unyoking the grief that we walk around with every day, um, and the you know in particular the the suicides that marked your um, your understanding of your family and then you know of yourself as well and in a kind of in a way that you saw yourself in a lineage. Um, you know, that's one of the things you're really trying to grapple with here. Um, is there a way in which you're um, writing about these movies, which are um, constantly dealing with death and the dead, and then intermixing it um, with family stories, with your own kind of life growing up? Are you doing a little bit of sort of raising the dead from your own life in a way that you can you can see them and then deal with the grief related to them? Yeah, I th I think in some ways it's made me less hesitant to uh, to think about these losses or to talk about them. I think it's also made me less hesitant to talk about um, and admit, you know, when I'm feeling low. It, I see it as like a sort of self-preservation in a sense. There's, you know, a whole genre of like writers writing to stay alive, writers writing to, you know, because they they have ultimate faith in it and they think that you know, giving themselves over to the work will help them not only understand, but sustain them in some way. And I, I think in a lot of ways, I find it to be comforting, even when it's unsettling, because it's a way of holding up a feeling, validating it and, and confronting it rather than uh, saying, well, this isn't here, or everything's fine, mm -hmm. when, when everything isn't necessarily fine. And, you know, I think that's something that's really important. And it's something that I think is becoming increasingly acceptable or, um, you know, people are seeing the significance of, you know, not only being vocal about these feelings, but also talking about them. Yeah. And I, and I think you say this as, as much in, in the essays, you um, talk about how we attach ourselves to, to art um, and that art is, is a place in which you can experience grief in a way that's different. I mean, we live in a society in the United States in which um, grief is almost prohibited. Um, and yet it's, you know, it's something that um, certainly now when everyone is, is grieving in various ways, but we all carry these, these griefs and, and mournings, um, small and large. Um, I wanted to, uh, to switch to a kind of figuration of the monstrous in, in your book that really drew me in. I'm, I'm terrified of sharks. Um, and it appears a little bit from your writing that you might be as well, although I don't want to, um, you know, overlayer your narrative voice as a complete, uh, one to one with you. Um, but, of sharks and horror movies, you say they are, quote, a metaphor for unexpected death, as well as immense feeling, the sense of being tugged beneath the water. And while you don't mention it directly, um, Open Water is the horror film um, about being left in the middle of the ocean and kind of awaiting shark attack. And it brings the horror of the shark to the level of perception. The camera stays eye level with the couple as they bob up and down in the ocean, clarity above, opacity below. And the most terrifying thing about the inevitable shark bite is not the shark itself, but the feeling that it is lurking there just outside of our perception. Sharks are the void. 
Is that why sharks terrify you? And why are they a useful metaphor here? So, so your layering is totally right and okay in this point, <laughs> um, because I am really, I'm laughing, but I am really terrified of sharks. I'm with you. I am, I'm ter- you know, they just, <laughs> they're enormous. They're kind of ancient monsters. Totally. They're dinosaurs. Why are we not calling them dinosaurs? They are ancient and it's it's like that deserves a certain level of respect, but it's also just kind of they just don't care. And they're just <laughs> acting on total instinct. Um and the teeth. <laughs> Definitely the teeth. These depths that humans cannot, you know, exist without like going deep down and experiencing like pressure on the body. That just gives me a whole like that's a whole other level of anxiety. <laughs> um, you know, they live and plumb the void. That's hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and I think it's also, it is that kind of, it's that lingering sense of danger beyond my vantage. And that's, that's what makes them a perfect metaphor. Um, but also their immensity and their capacity for violence is just, astounding to me and that they don't care i think i've said that but like that it's not personal but that it's so you know it a shark attack can kill someone Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh you know that's like what's so obliterating um and i think that's death is like that um it doesn't care it doesn't you know worry about our feelings it it happens regardless um and it's a part of the natural landscape as you know sharks are part of the landscape of specific oceans yeah and it seems like the you really clearly like the movie it follows which i know a lot of people who um like the kind of artful horror form really quite uh, they lift that one up as a as a particularly excellent model of the form and you write quite a bit about it in these essays and it and there's from what i can tell from having kind of read about the film it has a similar nature in that there's not a kind of like vengeance um in what follows you as much as a kind of like lurking monstrosity it can't be stopped it's coming um and its shape is unclear to you it's outside of your perception am i right that that's maybe it's kind of sharky in a little bit it is and i think also so it's funny you mentioned that one because that that was the first when i started this that was the first one i that was the first film i wrote about for this book um, because it had such an impact on me, it resonated so deeply. But what's interesting about the the sharkiness of the it follows monster, it uh, it's a shapeshifter. So it appears as an old woman, or it appears as you know uh, one of the characters' fathers standing naked on a roof Mm. and it's this very unsettling just slow walking you wouldn't even in some scenes like you would have to see the movie several times to know oh that's it walking or you know maybe you're second guessing and saying well wait a second is that it or is that just someone walking down the sidewalk Um, which is i think what gives it that sharky feeling right like that you don't know if 
the person you're seeing is an extra or it when you watch it. So yeah, that's, it, a, that's a really great film. I I may have to sort of just like buckle up and actually um and actually watch it and uh, you know if it's too scary I'll just read a Wikipedia entry and <laughs> deal with it that way. Um, yeah. So you uh, you deal quite a bit with the concept of the final girl in horror films, the last woman alive who must confront the monster or villain after the slaughterhouse is full of her friends and family. Um, she is a totem of bravery and the one standing on the threshold fighting off death to, at the last moment with her very body. She's also the remnant of an entire clan of girls assaulted, dismembered, tortured, and evacuated from the world by men, or at least the embodied monster of men's misogyny. Is this duality at play for you here? Why is the final girl so important for thinking about death and grief? Yeah, so it's interesting because when I first encountered the genre, it was through, you know, early, early boyfriends trying to convince me as to, you know, why, why this, this was so important, <laughs> you know, these assaults or these certain violences we see uh, against women. And so in a lot of ways, initially, I found that I, years ago, I was really resistant to horror. Um, and then like, for whatever reason, maybe it's a condition of life, just being alive in this world, I started to see like, well, wait a second, like, this duality, you know, it's a condition of existing as a woman in this world. Um, and I, I think mm -hmm. that's probably not exclusive. That sense of duality is not exclusive to, specifically to women. Um, I think we see that across, you know, race, we see that across class, this sense of existing in two, in two spaces. And so in that way, I feel like sometimes there are some films where I feel like they handle uh, that violence in a way that, that doesn't quite seem to be justified for me at least. Um, but when I think about those films that do get it right, and I think about the final girl, I, I think that it's about storytelling. You know, she's the one who's left to tell the story. Hmm. And mm -hmm. I think in a lot of ways that death and grief are a negotiation of storytelling, right? Like, whether it's a loss of loved one or a loss of sense of self, a loss of a sense of dignity, like you have to, a person has to rebuild that story in some way. You have to rebuild mm -hmm. the family story or the self narrative um, and how you continue to move through the world after a loss or a, a specific personal trauma. Um, yeah, the so, yeah. power and kind of agency over story. Um, I, I really like that as a way to think about the the place of this figure of the final girl. Uh, the the movie I'm I'm thinking of uh, at first is Sigourney Weaver in Aliens, um, and mm -hmm. she has to return to this thing that she fears the most because her story hasn't. She has no agency over the story, like corporate. It, entities and military entities have sort of stolen away her story and they don't believe her or they sort of sort of believe her um 
And so she goes back, both because there's a sense that she wants to exterminate this terrible, monstrous species, but also because um, she needs to have control over that story. And and I do think it is a a, a particularly um, uh, a, a particular thing about being a woman in the world that um, whether it's through kind of mansplaining or you know men kind of constantly co-opting agency and story away from women, there's a way that certain horror films can be seen as kind of trying to grab that back in these really highly dramatized and frightening scenes. Yeah, and I think we've seen that a lot in, especially in in recent years and more recent films. I mean, probably most recently this year, we've had Promising Young Woman. Uh, And that, I think, was an entirely new take on, like, what we've come to know is the revenge genre. Mm. And... Yeah, so that was one that I that I think of. And that was a female, that was a woman director, which is really important too, I think, is that this genre that was historically, you know, lots of male directors, now more women are, you know, writing the stories and they're directing them. So that's really important too. Um, but yeah, I love that you thought of Aliens. That's such a great example. <laughs> and I kind of caught up in that. Yeah, no, I, um, I, I just, I think, I find myself attracted to the the kind of like power that that Sigourney Weaver grabs up out of that situation and she's so indomitable in that role. I just um I I never forget the kind of the close-ups on her face as she's just assaulted by the most horrific forms of monstrosity. So one of the few true horror films of the last decade um, that I've been brave enough to watch all the way through is the Swedish film Let the Right One In, which I think is a masterpiece. Uh, It might be one of my favorite films. And I feel like it bends the curve to this idea of the final girl and allows the final girl to exist singularly, living off the blood of mostly men. She's undead, she's a vampire, um, but she is forced to live off the products of death of others. She's wed to death. Do you think horror films see women as uniquely capable of grappling with this dual relationship to death? Um, And, you know, is this a film that you find resonates with some of these concepts that you've been building in Night Rooms? Yeah, so it's it's funny because Let the Right One In is not specifically in Night Rooms, but I think it most certainly does. It's a beautiful film. And and I agree, like it's it's a masterpiece. Um but and I do think that it shows women as, you know, capable of like dealing with this relationship to death. Um but I also think that um there are other films too that, you know, they kind of point to women being able to grapple with, um, you know, the dualities and demands of life. So like motherhood is one theme Mm. that I think is kind of, it's held on a pedestal and um, horror kind of takes that away and says, no, these are kind of like some possible bad case scenarios. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Totally amplified. Um, Is that like Babadook and um, the one with Tony Collette recently? Hereditary. Oh yeah. Yeah job of that yes and motherhood or and um the babadook and 
that movie just it's that movie is about motherhood and grief and it's just so it, it's such a wild film and i think every time i watch it i i forget how intense it is <laughs> Hmm. And uh, by the end of it, I'm just kind of wilting in my seat. Like, (laughs) I forgot what this was, how like deep it got. Um, But there's another one that came out a couple, just a few years ago. And it was actually a, um, it was like a horror comedy almost like it's funny in ways. Um, It's called in fabric and it's kind of a modern take on the Italian giallo form, which was, I don't know that. Oh, it's like a blend of crime and horror elements so sometimes that's like slasher elements rarely but sometimes ghost you know the supernatural mm-hmm. uh, plan. Um, but in fabric you know that has a woman who's recently divorced and she works at a bank and she's raising a teenage son on her own and she's you know dealing with these kind of horrible bosses at work facing microaggressions and and she tries to start dating. So she, she like treats herself to a new dress, uh, which turns out to be cursed. <laughs> <laughs> of course. The <laughs> part is that this dress is like trying to hurt everyone. <laughs> like one of the, the son's girlfriend tries on the dress and the dress gets mad or something. <laughs> it's real strange, but it's also very beautiful. Um, but again, it deals with a lot of, you know, this person who's trying to work, raise a child. Um, and, and it's just a really startlingly beautiful film, but also has plenty to say. Um, so I guess that would be a really great example of, you know, I would put that one next to let the right one in on the shelf. Yeah. Well, and I think you're raising a really good point, which is that there, um, you know, what we think of the really kind of hard structures of horror have been bent and a lot of times by um, women directors or more recent directors to take up these other um, themes that are principal in a woman's experience. And, you know, the fact that kind of um, maternalness has really been taken on. And I guess that's been a theme actually since the kind of turn of the 20th century, not 20th century, the mid 20th century. Um, and in horror, but it's really come to a kind of like finer point from what I can, from what I can tell that the um, willingness to dissect it as not merely pure good um, and to understand the things that happen to women that aren't allowed to be talked about because of the way that there are these gender limitations and how you can talk about your children or raising children or giving birth or all these different things. Um, and so it, it seems like horror is a really important genre for um, helping digest those in more meaningful ways. Yes, I, I think it definitely holds it holds that space and it makes room for, you know, it, it's it accommodates. It's willing to accommodate discussions that I think other genres might uh, might dismiss or mm-hmm. might not have, you know, that creative expansive creative capacity to uh explore um yeah i like i like the way you put that yeah it can just do so many things because it doesn't have to be this gruesome horrifying like ultimately gory depiction it can be a really creepy slow take on it and i think that's what's really cool is when 
we see these directors who are really playing with uh, the psychological aspects of things. And I, I think that's some of that, you know, you mentioned it follows. And I think that's something we see a lot now is the, these psychological horror films, which really play up a lot of uh, collective anxieties that I think <laughs> many of us experience or, or witness. Um, and I think that's incredible to, to see. Well, I know that, that in the height of the the AIDS crisis, uh, vampire movies and movies of um, infection became became kind of a real touchstone for that moment. And I'm wondering, uh, thinking about what the future films about COVID nineteen, what will be their kind of monster of choice? It'll be really interesting to to wait and see. I wanted to um, switch uh, tonalities a little bit and talk about. Um, the way in which you talk about dance and ballet um, in these essays. And it, you know, it is, it is grounded in a, in a true family tragedy. Your, your great uncle was a principal dancer in the San Francisco ballet, and he tragically took his own life. You were also a serious dancer. Uh, like so much in night rooms, the horror of death and its attendant grief permeates even through something that you love. I think ballet, even without your personal history attached to it, is an art that uniquely mingles aesthetic beauty and horror in the cruel tortures that are a daily part of the point practice. Do you see ballet as particular in its approach to these kind of these kind of difficult things to mix the idea of the things we do to fill our life um, with joy, but mixed also with pain and regret and grief. Yeah. And I, I think it is mixed with, you know, the sense of artistic love, but it is also very painful. Um, so there's kind of the bodily aspect of it where, you know, it is very physically demanding to dance uh, to dance full stop, but also ballet in particular has its specific, it's grueling. Mm. Uh, it, there's also a finite, there's a timeline, right? At a certain point, you know, whether it's, you know, the whim of the body, which was my experience, um, in addition to an injury that just kind of was like, well, that's, that is it, you know? <laughs> um, and I think that for me was something really startling was the sense that, you can really love it. You can really practice. And, and in the end, you know, like injury plus, you know, the body becoming what the body becomes um, shape wise. Um, it just wasn't going to work out the way I'd hoped it would. Oh, God, it's um, like a microcosm of aging. You How quickly you like age out of it. Oh, that sounds terrible. <laughs> and it was not by the end. It wasn't fun. Um, and it was really painful and, and sad. And I think in addition to, you know, the, the personal body aspect of it, um, which isn't just personal to me, but I think a lot of dancers experience that is also the, the kind of narratives, uh, for a lot of the story ballets. So a lot of these beautiful performances, they are layered with just darkness and you know dark magic and really <laughs> messed up stories um you know i mentioned a few in the book but like you know you have giselle with these these 
bride ghosts who rise up from the grave and they they make men dance until they're dead i mean that's dark (laughs) um and it's this beautiful like you can you can watch it on youtube if you if you find yourself so inclined it's haunting and it's gorgeous to watch the willies dance um but then there's also you know swan lake with the sorcerer's curse and it's it's just this kind of beautiful form but the stories themselves are very... Well, you're describing like, horror stories, it sounds like. Right? Well, it's kind of like, you know, that's part of the beauty of it, isn't it, right? Like opera being... Like, who doesn't want to cry at the opera? <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, that seems like such a like long-gone treat, <laughs> being able to weep at the opera or the ballet. Yeah, and I I remember reading in the New Yorker uh, about how there had been designed several new forms of point shoes in which you could transition from like semi point to point less painfully, and and ballerinas at major ballets all over the world sort of like unanimously rejected them, and it was it was as though the kind of the process of feeling and dealing with pain was important to the art itself, which feels that feels pretty grim to me, but it's, it's a nice metaphor for um, the way in which you talk about needing to process and deal with grief. Yeah. Oh, that is such an apt metaphor, right? It's, it's like growing pains. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, there's no way. Is, I feel like this must be like something I heard and like a, or read on the internet, like in my endless internet, like grief Googling, like that there's no way around it. You have to go through it. Or maybe I heard it in a movie. So I feel bad even quoting it because I don't remember. But like that idea of like that you can't you can't sidestep the the pain of grief. You have to you have to go through it. And I think what's hard too is trying to navigate that like alongside other people. And, you know, just kind of figuring that out, too, can be really challenging, like, um, and meeting other people where they are. I think it it takes a lot of self-awareness and, um, like, really deep knowledge of another person or a willingness Mm -hmm. to, like, stay open to that. Um, And I think that's just, that's its own pain and its own process yeah and Um, staying open to grief for someone else means having to kind of touch the void um the thing that we're all trying to put off and not think about and move to the side and um and that's what this year has been is like not letting us put it to the side because it's so um intractably part of our everyday right now and it makes me think that we need a better we need a better way of talking about um, the need to sometimes engage in those ways for others who are processing deep grief and need someone to to approach those those difficult unknowable things with them. I hope that comes out of this moment. I hope so too, and I, I think it, I think it will because it. You know, I was just reading in the Times earlier this week, like that this that a lot of people who maybe have experienced what they consider lesser griefs are hesitant to talk about it. There's this tendency to say, well, it could be worse Mm -hmm, or, mm -hmm. or at least this hasn't happened. And I thought that was such a really smart, important piece because I think it's really important that everyone, you know, acknowledge their 
unique griefs because there's no way to be there for other people who might be going through something different, something that, you know, seems larger if, you know, if a person doesn't address like, okay, well, I'm sad about this smaller grief, you know, we have to be able to like hold our griefs and acknowledge them all. And I think that that's something we're going to see come out of this is we have no choice but to figure out how to, you know, make room for our grief and address it. So this is a moment of a really radical experimentation of with the essay form. And John Degata, who would absolutely like to take credit for this movement, but I think that's that's up for debate, describes the essay as, quote, an art form that tracks the evaluation of consciousness as it rolls over the folds of a new idea, memory, or emotion. That role through the conscious mind demands a plasticity of the genre to exist as components of the essay's fulsome form. What in your mind is the status of the essay today? And who are the best practitioners of the form? Oh my gosh. So, so I read vastly. Um, and I, I think that my sense of the essay and the status is that it's, it's continuing to evolve. Mm-hmm. And I'm really excited about all the people who are writing and all the people we're getting to read. Uh, I think it's, it's interesting you mentioned John Degata because about a mountain, I kept that book close in late stage revision of this book. Mm. <laughs> um, it, that was just, it was, it's a book length essay, but also, you know, each of the individual pieces could be an essay. So I think that's interesting. Like thinking about our earlier discussion of like the book length essay yeah. versus like those individual bites. Um, some other writers who I'm just blown away by and so excited by their work. One of them is, um, or several of them are writers who initially wrote poetry and then they came to the essay. And that's you as well, right? You started as a a poet. Yes, that is me. Um, and so that's probably why I really like these writers. Um, Chelsea Hodson, who had a fantastic essay collection called tonight. I'm someone else that was out in 2018. Um, And I describe it as being about art, intimacy, work, um, power. I I think it's it's like this really crystalline prose articulated through a poetic sensibility. And I just I I think there's something so distilled and compact about the writing that it really just feels like that, you know, the consciousness rolling that uh, Degata describes. and another poet, essayist, cultural critic I, I really look to is Hanif Abdurraqib. Oh, yeah. Uh, who's also a $2 radio press mate. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so whose book, you know, They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us. I love that uh, I, collection. That collection is amazing. It's so immersive and poetic. And it's just, it's sharp and it. Yeah, he can, can he it. can throw body blows too. That is not he doesn't fool around. But like that enmeshment of like music and personal experience, I just yeah, that was another one I kept close, especially because like I'm writing about like movies and personal experience, but in a very different way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's good to look at other folks. Um, I also really love uh, Samantha Irby's work. 
Um, so she does like blogging and also essays. Um, and I think she's just hilarious. And I love that, you know, because I think humor in this moment is really important. Oh yeah. Gosh. Um, yeah. Um, and then also, you know, so one more I was thinking of was like Gia Tolentino. Mm, mm-hmm. I, did you read uh trick mirror? Yes. By chance? Yeah. It's a, it's a great collection. That is such a, I mean, I, I love reading her, you know, journalism as well, you know, and I'd argue though, they're like a mix of like journalistic essays, um, but it's so smart. And I also feel like I'm a millennial and <laughs> I, I need my signposts of like someone writing about this time and kind of guiding me intelligently. And I felt like that book was an articulate way to do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, she has an essay called always be optimizing. <laughs> gotcha. that, I just, I, that spoke to me on a level of, you know, on a cellular level that I <laughs> can't get over. Yeah. I think she's, she's become a real sort of like uh, a lightning rod for thinking about those, the ways in which kind of so social media personas and, um, and kind of like, digital privacy in public life and uh and i think people especially millennials are like turning to her to kind of think through those things yeah yeah i think that like so so those are that's kind of like a map of and it's interesting because i feel like a lot of those writers are really different than like what i've made i feel like it should be some kind of like map back to them or something but um i think it's really important to like read you know beyond what you do and so that's i guess why i kind of gravitate across you know across the map like and just pull towards you know what sounds really incredible to me well Um, i think that what i liked about night rooms is it didn't really remind me of anything else i felt like i was reading something really quite new um and i obviously i I, the, I recognize the sort of like fragmented form. That's something that, that, that people use more readily now, but there was a different way of interacting between, between cinema and kind of personal narrative. Um, there are times where there's like a real kind of dramatization that's happening in your writing and times where it's contemplative. And it, it made me think that this is, you know, this is the essay and it's kind of broadest sensibilities because it could be a memoir. Um, and I just uh, read the exceptional um, What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker by Damon Young, which is called a memoir in essays. Um, and you could call Night Rooms a memoir. Um, it certainly acts at times like a novel and it feels, um, you know, like like pieces of of good auto fiction that I've read. Um, and it has a lot of cinematic, uh, elements to it, not just talking about cinema, but the way it tries to make imminent these sort of scenes that are so frightening or eerie or make us breathless. And obviously your poetic instincts are on display as well. Um, is it possible that the essay is just a way of trying on different forms to suit the subject matter and that we don't even need the name essay? I, it's so funny. I love that possibility. Like the the, the word essay just goes away. <laughs> we just say this is this is writing, or yeah. this person is a writer. Um, and it's interesting because like I used to kind of divide and say, well, I'm a poet and an essayist, and now I'm just like I'm a writer. Um, 
And I think anytime like a form outgrows one shell and moves into another, um, maybe finds a more accommodating shell. Yeah, um, yeah. That's like an invitation to more, that's like an invitation to more voices um, and more modes of saying more modes of telling stories or connecting with audience. Um, I think we'll always probably have the word essay or something like it just because I think it's human nature to set, to categorize. Right. So like even within fiction, we have, you know, all the different genre, you know, sub genres. Um, and so I think we're always going to have the essay. And then within the essay, you'll have people saying, well, there's the lyric essay, there's the journalistic essay. Um, and I think that really it comes down to the person making it, but it also comes down to a lot of, it comes down to editors and publishers. Uh, so I think it's kind of, I think the essay is going to stay though. Yeah, it probably has a, a life beyond my my interest in in thinking about it as as the the kind of grand umbrella category. But I did I, um oh. I like that, you know, just to go to writing. Yeah, no, I think and and that's what Night Rooms does so well is it makes you forget that you're, this is something called uh essays and it just lets you live in in the writing. Gina, it was such a pleasure getting to talk to you, and I I really love Night Rooms, and I'm hopeful that listeners to this podcast will run out and get a get a copy. Um, Two Dollar Radio is an awesome press. I don't know if you want to plug them at all because they deserve a plug. Two Dollar Radio is incredible, so I am totally going to plug them. They're an independent publisher based out of Columbus, Ohio. And they publish fiction, essays. They also, this year, will be publishing their first poetry collection in September. So that's really exciting. Um, and they've been a total dream to work with. And so I'm so lucky that, that they, you know, picked up Night Rooms and that they're bringing it into the world. Um, so check out their other books, too. Yeah, so support um, support $2 Radio and support Night Rooms. And thanks so much, Gina. Thank you, Chris. It was wonderful to talk with you. Okay, bye-bye. Well, that's it for our show today. My thanks to Gina Nutt for a wonderful conversation about her collection of essays, Night Rooms, newly out with $2 Radio. Thanks as always for joining me, and please be on the lookout for a spring absolutely chock full of fabulous guests. Until then, have a listen to my previous interviews and take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify and give us a rating if you have a moment. This has been Burned by Books.